Mark's Badness, now part of Chunkaluta. Hello. Hello, we're doing Gramsci again. It will never end. <laughs> um, it seems like the last few books have, have kind of turned into the, the book will never end, but you know, that, that just means there's good stuff in there. Um, but welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod, uh, where we read books, part of the Chunkaluta Network. Um, and I'm I'm David. I'm Prez. And we're going to be jumping back in the Gramsci reader that Prez has put together for us. Uh, it'll be slide 136, uh, part four of chapter five, Fascist Reaction and Communist Strategy. It'll be some aspects of the Southern question. Before we get into that, um, we tend to, until the new news show show is up and running, touch on current events. Um, and obviously those are very ripe with the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Um, since we talked last, we were saying, of course, that, you know, it was what people ask for and we support the, 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 the movements. Um, so when the Palestinians asked for a ceasefire, we supported it, but we also didn't really, you know, trust it so much. And now instead of bombing the North, um, they're moving to the South, mostly with foot soldiers in, in a ground invasion, um, there have been horrible war crimes reported, like going into a school, um, pulling out all of the men, including an elderly man, and killing women, children, and babies, everyone left in there, execution style, um, which is just it, – it's, <laughs> it's so absurdly, obviously genocidal to do something like that, right? Um, that was very much, um, reminiscent of the, the Eastern front in world war two and, and the, um, uh, Slavic Holocaust. Um, and, you know, obviously many other things are, are happening there, but yeah, that's, it's, it's continuing, it's ongoing. Um, and we need to do whatever we can to support and fight it. Things like there was a protest that actually shut down a big freeway in LA today. Um, obviously anything like that. Um, because we have to, we have to take action. It's a genocide. I'm sorry. And elections will be coming up next year and everyone's going to start giving you lectures about voting for the lesser of the two evils. And I do get scared with elections because this very much seems like, the empires crumbling when empires shake and crumble, they, they still linger for long, long times in fascist reaction, unless there's an uprising to topple them. And, and, you know, as things ramp up as, as there's, you know, the genocide in the Congo and the genocide in Gaza and the, the push for war in Ukraine, the, the overtures uh, at trying to get war started with China and start world war three, you know, that, that is terrifying. That is the violent reaction and fascist reaction that the nation's going to, going to go. And those tend to make big leaps in any electoral year, um, especially when party switches, regardless of which party wins. Um, so, so that's a little scary. And also like, obviously don't fall for the lesser of two evil bullshit. Um, but that was the big update that, that we wanted to give on, Palestine. Did you have any more on that, Prez? Uh, no. Okay. Not really. In in slightly better news, again, a, a short-lasting ceasefire. This one is prescribed to be 72 hours. Uh, but in the Congo, where 7 million people are displaced... Um, and we touched on that slightly before. You know, obviously, even the leaders of the Congo uh, are very pro West and get their, their military and guard uh, trained by Israel and had to put down uh, the anti UN pro or <laughs> had to put down in, because you know, they're, they're Western supported 
the the anti UN protests. They they basically like killed sixty people, um, which was massive in Goma uh, a few months ago. Um, well, as those elections come up, especially with the last one, very obviously like robbed by them, and this very obvious you know uprising of anti colonial sentiments. Um, the country's seeing an invasion and it's continued, you know, Uganda and Rwanda who are weaponized by the United States um, have been fighting, you know, the Congo for years. We think of the, the Rwandan genocide in, in the mid nineties, um, but there's big war in 99. The fighting's just carried on for the last 30 years. Um, and, and there's been a massive genocidal invasion there that people finally turn their, their eye to that is 7 million people displaced. So a 72 hour ceasefire while short lived. And I don't know, you know, really what completely displaced people without shelter are going to do to really rebuild or, or situate themselves in 72 hours. It is certainly better than the alternative. Um, and, and a very good thing to see. Um, so that's the, the goodish news we have in current events. Um, I think I think that's all I had um, we did mention or we didn't mention but uh, we've talked before the show about South, South Africa's president uh, has called on the ICC to try Netanyahu which yeah that's deserved but um, that's the, the ICC is a colonial outpost it's never going to do that it would only do that if Netanyahu was already fully in fall guy mode. Even then, they're never going to do it. No, probably it would, not for Israel. It would yeah. set a precedent. Even if he's in fall guy mode, it would still set a precedent. Well, true, true. But they did do it for, like, Croatia and stuff. Those were never our guys, though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, the new president of Argentina... Mm-hmm. He devalued the currency and it dropped by half within 24 hours. So yeah. nope, that's that going to be right. a neoliberal clusterfuck. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's, he's been openly like talking about their second biggest trade partner behind Brazil and the largest economy in the world by PPP, of course, is China. And he uses the word civil. I mean, he's like an overt fascist, like, like we will trade with the civilized side, the wet. Like he fucking says that shit. Um, and uh, oh, the one of the first things he did once he assumed office was uh, sign trade agreements with China. So all of that was just bluster. Yeah, all of that was just that. That's what I was gonna say. Is like he he immediately was like, oh shit. Um, but he's still he's still gonna try to do something along those lines as best he can. But I think with the currency devaluing and the the effects of it, it's gonna be probably a little harder sell now so i mean he's literally a world imf economist Mm -hmm. by employ before being president so he's gonna pull all the all the the stops out yeah and it's it's gonna be real shock treatment so it's gonna be interesting to watch yep so um and that's Probably all we've got for current events then. Um, so we can jump into the reading. Again, we're on slide 136, part four of chapter five, fascist reaction, communist strategy, 1924 to 1926. Section four is some aspects of the Southern question. And we start with an ellipses and we're going to jump into here. Ellipses is a passage from Lordane Nuovo. Uh, number three, January 1920, which sums up the viewpoint of the Turin communists on the question of the Italian South. And the quote begins, the Northern bourgeoisie has subjugated the South of Italy and the islands and reduced them to exploitable colonies. By emancipating itself from capitalist slavery, the Northern proletariat will emancipate the Southern peasant masses enslaved to the banks and the parasitic industry of the North. The economic and political regeneration of the peasants should not be sought in a division of uncultivated or poorly cultivated lands, but in the solidarity of the industrial proletariat. This, in turn, needs the solidarity of the peasantry and 
has an interest in ensuring that capitalism is not reborn economically from landed property, that Southern Italy and the islands do not become a military base for the capitalist counter-revolution. By introducing workers' control over industry, the proletariat will orient industry to the production of agricultural machinery for the peasants, clothing and footwear for the peasants, electrical lighting for the peasants, and will prevent industry and the banks from exploiting the peasants and subjugating them as slaves to the strong rooms. Uh, I don't know what a strong room is. I guess that's just like a bunch of rich people, powerful people put together. Yeah, like, like a like not like a secret society exactly, but like a coalition of people. Cool. <laughs> Decide like a like a bank coalition, like a business union. Nice. Um, by smashing the factory autocracy, by smashing the oppressive apparatus of the capitalist state and setting up a worker state that will subject the class capitalists to the law of useful labor the workers will smash all the chains that bind the peasant to his poverty and desperation by setting up a workers dictatorship and taking over the industries and banks the proletariat will swing the enormous weight of the state bureaucracy behind the peasants in their struggle against the landowners against the elements and against poverty the proletariat will provide the peasants with credit set up cooperatives, guarantee security of person and property against looters, and carry out public works of reclamation and irrigation. It will do all this because an increase in agricultural production is in its interest, because to win and keep the solidarity of the peasants is in its interest, because it's in its interest to orient industrial production to work, which will promote peace and brotherhood between town and countryside, between north and south. I just double checked and a strong room is a bank vault. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That still fits. So you go back completely, to I, I was misunderstanding that sentence for like five years. <laughs> oh, see, this is why I ask sometimes. Um, th that was written in January 1920. Seven years have gone by, and there are several seven years older politically, too. Today, certain concepts might be expressed better. The period immediately following the conquest of state power, characterized by simple workers' control of industry, could and should be more cl clearly distinguished from the subsequent periods. But the important thing to note here is that the fundamental concept of the Turin communist was not the magical formula of dividing the biggest states, but rather the political alliance between the northern workers and southern peasants to oust the bourgeoisie from state power. Furthermore, precisely the Turin communists, although they supported division of land, subordinated the solidarity action of the two classes, themselves warned against miraculous illusions on a mechanical sharing out of the big estates. In the same article, 3rd January, we find, we can a poor peasant achieve, what can a poor peasant achieve by occupying uncultivated or poorly cultivated lands? What machinery without accommodation on the place of work, without credit to tide him over till harvest time, without cooperative institutions to acquire the harvest, if, long before harvest time, the peasant has not hung himself from the strongest bush or the least unhealthy looking wild fig in the undergrowth of his uncultivated land and preserve him from the clutches of the usurers without all these things. What can a poor peasant achieve by occupying in the proletarian camp? The Turin communists had one undeniable merit that of being bringing the Southern question forcibly to the attention of the workers' vanguard and identifying it as one of the essential problems of national policy for the revolutionary proletariat. The Turin communist posed concretely the question of the hegemony of the proletariat, i.e. of the social basis of the proletarian dictatorship and of the worker state. The proletariat can become the leading uh, dirigente and the dominant class to the extent that it allows that it succeeds in creating a system of class alliances, which allows it to mobilize the majority of the working population against capitalism and the bourgeois state. Um, what is it? Dirigente. 
I've never seen that edit before. Is that's that- like that's the translator saying like this isn't the exact translation. This is the oh. literal Italian word that he wrote. Oh, okay. And this is the closest translation we get to it. Gotcha. So like if you speak so like they do this a lot in translation where like if it doesn't do a very good match, you put the word. So if you speak the language, you can kind of get a better meaning. That's good. Um, in Italy, in the real class relations which exist here, this means to the extent that it succeeds in gaining the consent of the broad peasant masses. But the peasant question is historically determined in Italy. It is not the peasant and agrarian question in general. In Italy, the peasant question, through the specific Italian tradition and the specific development, development of Italian history, has taken two typical and particular forms, the southern question and that of the Vatican. Winning the majority of the peasant masses thus means, for the Italian proletariat, making these two questions its own from the social point of view, understanding the class demands which they represent, incorporating these demands into its revolutionary transitional program, placing these demands among the objectives for which it struggles. First problem, oh, go ahead. Just like reading this stuff, and then we're going to read some of his other stuff on like culture and hegemony and cultural revolution and like just makes me wonder like was Gramsci aware this was written in 1926 so he wasn't actually aware of what was going on in China because the revolution in China didn't quite take off yet but like if there were just a few more years similar to like Mao's how do we get the peasantry on our side yeah um so it's like it's very impressive uh how similar both like the Mao's development of the peasant question and Gramsci's development of the peasant question are uh that we're gonna keep seeing so keep it in the back of your mind I suppose because it's very, it's a, it's the di- convergent evolution kind of thing. They just happen at the same time uh, by accident. The first problem to resolve for the Turin communists was how to modify the political stance and general ideology of the proletariat itself as a national element which exists within the ensemble of state life and is unconsciously subjected to the influence of bourgeois education the bourgeois press, and bourgeois traditions. It is well known what kind of ideology has been disseminated in myriad ways ways among the masses in the North by the propagandists of the bourgeoisie. The South is the ball and chain which prevents the social development of Italy from progressing more rapidly. The Southerners are biologically inferior beings, semi-barbarians, or total barbarians, by natural destiny. If the South is backward, the fault does not lie with the capitalist system or with any historical cause, but with nature, which has made the Southerners lazy, incapable, criminal, and barbaric, only only tempering this harsh fate with purely individual explosion of a few great geniuses, like isolated palm trees in an arid desert barren, in an, in an arid and barren desert. So he's being sarcastic here. Um, but this is obviously the, the few good gems in a rotten uh, bundle and all of that kind of stuff. The Socialist Party was to a great extent the vehicle for this bourgeois ideology within the northern proletariat. The Socialist Party gave its blessing to all the southernist literature of the clique of writers who made up the so-called positive school. Ferry Seri Nicerforo, Orano, and their lesser fellows 
who in articles, tales, short stories, novels, impressions, and memoirs, excuse me, impressions and memoirs in a variety of forms reiterated one single refrain. Once again, quote-unquote, science was used to crush the wretched and exploited, but this time it was dressed in socialist colors, claimed to be the science of the proletariat. The proletariat had itself had itself to adopt the approach of the Turing communists for it to become politically effective. That goes without saying. No mass action is is possible if the masses in question are not convinced of the ends they wish to attain and the methods to be applied. The proletariat, in order to be to become capable as a class of governing must strip itself of every residue of corporatism, every syndicalist prejudice, incrustation, and incrustation. What does this mean? That in addition to the need to overcome the distinctions which win the trust and consent of the peasants and some of the semi-proletarian urban categories, to overcome certain prejudices and conquer certain forms of egoism, which can and do subsist within the working class as such, even when craft particularism has disappeared, the metal worker, the joiner, the building worker, etc., must not think only as proletarians and no longer as metal worker, joiner, building, building worker, etc. They must also take a further step. They must think as workers who are members of a chain of a class which aims to lead the peasants and intellectuals of a class which can win and build socialism only if it is aided and followed by the great majority of these social strata. If this is not achieved, the proletariat does not become a, does not become the leading class. And these strata, which in Italy represent the majority of the population, remaining under the bourgeois leadership, enable the state to resist the proletarian assault and wear it down. So just these two paragraphs are really important because um, even on the left today, when we talk about stuff like urban planning or, you know, things in healthcare or medicine or science in general or, uh, you know, any kind of equality issues going on, we have a lot of trends for like neoliberal petty bourgeois ideology seeping in um, that ends up kind of, even if you're being genuine and you're trying to be very uh, progressive leftist, uh, principled communist or Marxist, you end up using uh, neoliberal logic because that's the, the system you brought up under. Uh, so the, <laughs> There's a Stuart Hall uh, quote that I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it to read directly, but he essentially says that, uh, you know, we all go to the protest. We all say that we're anti-racist, but after the protest, we go to Sainsbury's, which is their equivalent of like Walmart or Walgreens or whatever. And at that point, we're all a little neoliberal uh, for the rest of the day. And, That is the level of ideological uh, inculcation that we have to deal with, not only for educating other people in our political agitation, but also ourselves. So when there's the Maoist, we usually think of Mao's self-criticism and, and, uh, and political line struggle and all of that. And also now I said that there's a lot of uh, linkages between Mao and Gramsci, this, this kind of Gramscian um, idea of self-assessing and then having to unlearn and relearn everything. Uh, we need to really assess and think about exactly how do we conceive the world and how it should operate and how do we think things should operate uh, 
and how much of that is influenced by capital and how much of that is okay as things are operating right now and how much of that should change later. Um, because if we are not doing that, we're, we're going to be accidentally addressing people in ways that not only make them uncomfortable, but that is counterintuitive. Well, what has occurred on the terrain of the Southern question shows that the proletariat has understood these duties. Two events should be recalled. One took place in Turin. The other occurred at Reggio Emilia, i.e. in the very citadel of reformism, class corporatism, and working class protectionism, which is cited as a prime example of the quote-unquote, by the quote-unquote southernists in their propaganda among the peasants of the south. After the occupation of the factories, the fiat board proposed to the workers that they should run the firm as a cooperative. Naturally, the reformists were in favor. An industrial crisis was looming. The specter of the unemployed of unemployment tormented the workers' families. If fiat became a cooperative, a certain job security might be obtained by the skilled workers and especially the politically most active workers who were convinced that they were marked out for dismissal. The Socialist Party section, led by the communists, intervened energetically on the question. The workers were told the following, and this is one big block quote for the next, for the next while. A great firm like Fiat can be taken over as a cooperative by the workers only if the latter have resolved to enter the system of bourgeois political forces which governs Italy today. The proposal of the Fiat board forms part of Giolitti's political plan. In what does this plan consist? The bourgeoisie, even before the war, could not govern peacefully any longer. The rising of the Sicilian peasants in 1894 and the Milan insurrection of 1898 were the experimentum crucis, so crucial experiments, of the Italian bourgeoisie. After the bloody decade of 1890 to 1900, the bourgeoisie were, was forced to renounce a dictatorship that was too exclusive, too violent, too direct. For there had risen against it simultaneously, even if not in a coordinated fashion, the southern peasants and the northern workers. In the new century, the ruling class inaugurated a new policy of class alliances, class political blocs, i.e. bourgeois democracy. It had to choose either a rural democracy, i.e. an alliance with the southern peasants, a policy of free trade, universal suffrage, administrative decentralization, and low prices for industrial products, or a capitalist-slash-worker-industrial bloc without universal suffrage, with tariff barriers, and with the with the maintenance of a highly centralized state (parentheses), the expression of bourgeois domination over the peasants, especially in the south and the islands, and with a reformist policy on wages and trade union freedoms, it chose not by chance the latter solution. Giolitti personified bourgeois rule. The Socialist Party became the instrument the instrument of Giolitti's policies. If you look closely, it was in the decade of 1900 to 1910 that the most radical crises occurred in the socialist and working class movement. The masses reacted spontaneously against the policy of the reformist leaders. Syndicalism was born. The instinctive, elemental, primitive, but healthy expression of working class reaction against the bloc with the bourgeoisie and in favor of a block of with the peasants, and for and first and foremost with southern peasants. Precisely that. Indeed, in a certain sense, syndicalism is a weak attempt on the part of the southern peasants, represented by their most advanced intellectuals, to lead the proletariat. Who forms the leading nucleus of Italian syndicalism and what is its ideological essence? The leading nucleus of syndicalism is made up almost exclusively of Southerners. 
Labriola, Leone, Longobardi, Horano. The ideological essence of syndicalism is a new liberalism, more energetic, more aggressive, more pugnacious than the traditional variety. In the 10 years in question, capitalism was strengthened and developed and directed a part of its activity towards the agriculture of the Po Valley. So this is an agricultural region in the north. The most characteristic feature of those 10 years was the mass strikes of the agricultural workers of the Po Valley. A profound upheaval took place among the, the northern peasants. There occurred a deep class differentiation. The number of Brachianti day laborers increased by 50% according to 1911 census figures. And to this, there corresponded a recasting of political currents and spiritual attitudes. Christian democracy and Mussolinism were the two most outstanding products of the period. Romagna was the regional crucible of these two new activities. The day laborers seemed to have become the social protagonist of the political struggle. The left organs of social democracy, Lazione, in so action, uh, like Lazione in Sassena, and Mussolinism too soon fell under the control of the quote unquote Southernists. Lazione in Sassena was a regional edition of Gaetano Salvemini's. Unita, <laughs> united. Avanti, under Mussolini's editorship, slowly but surely became transformed into a tribune for syndicalist and southernist writers. Everyone remembers that, in fact, when Mussolini left Avanti and the Socialist Party, he was surrounded by this cohort of syndicalists and southernists. So I guess we should put an asterisk here and, and say that uh, Mussolini was never really a devout uh, socialist. Socialist. He was more of an opportunist. This is where people were coalescing. This is the whole idea of fascism and, and the whole reason why Nazism was literally the nationalist socialist party. Mm -hmm. People really like the idea and this is the whole patriotic socialist bullshit that exists in the u.s this also fits well into why there's so many like um you know right-wing co-option of socialist language and ideas just horribly misapplied just where it's like it if you didn't know the meaning of a word what you would assume the meaning was they go with that instead of the actual meaning and history behind it and get people to buy into stuff so you yeah, know, something or that you, you know is bad. They just throw around the word and don't know. Or even just like the well-meaning liberals that I'm sure everyone knows or has heard talk and is like, oh, well, the military is a socialist organization or the roads are socialist. Yeah. Um, but like this is this was the time where people actually wanted like socialist programs of, of like wealth redistribution, guaranteed employment, all of that stuff. Um, and then the right wing took those, as we're seeing happen today. Um, the right wing is taking a lot of these talking points even today, and they're going, okay, we'll give you some of this, but we're going to give it for a very specific kind of person, mm -hmm. for a very specific goal, and it's mm -hmm. going to be about imperial expansion. So if you're working for the empire, you'll get these things, and you're going to be better off. And and that that militarism and those specific benefits for that militarism and uh, is is was a key part of what made both fascist italy fascist and and nazi germany fascist was a major major part of it is is the the support of of the military and you you see the right wing in the united states you know doing this now right like through the great military loving party yeah um and i mean not for nothing like a big portion of the u.s economy is essentially propped up by military spending Mm -hmm. um, 
not just by weapons purchasing, but like I think like 15, 20% of Virginia's entire GDP is based on military contracting. Yeah. So well, like <laughs> you've also seen like the explosion of military centric quote unquote charity or social responsibility. Yeah. Just massive amounts of it. And and that's again, it's it's the you know yeah. that's the collaboration cat and, and the right wing has always had a a extra governmental collaboration. That's the whole point of the second amendment and shit like that for them. Right. Like we've talked about how guns are a complex issue because people shouldn't really be running around with assault rifles and we don't want children to get shot in school. And part of how the, the gun lobby, you know, works is making sure there aren't laws there and they're lobbying and control the control of the government, but also like, a major, major part of, of gun control is who's going to enforce it. That just gives a police gun monopoly. It's going to be used to, to, you know, not really to take guns out of people's hands, but to find excuses to arrest black people more, you know? Um, but that, that contradiction where the, the Republicans land on the gun side and they're so attached to love with the guns is because they're, they're the non-governmental militias, you know, fascism rides on that very, very much. And so these, you know, small business owners are very right wing, millionaires and billionaires or, you know, whatever, whatever they are that, that sits in that fascist side, a lot of their charity and social responsibility stuff is very much leaning for veterans, veteran, this veteran, that this veteran program, this reuniting, you know, here's your folds of honor. Here's your honor flight. Here's, you know, your, your, your great charity for, for, you know, disabled veterans and stuff like that. It's donate to donate to house and feed the vets because the VA is not going to take care of them. Yep, yep, it's that um, shit. Which, so. weirdly enough, the VA does not count towards, like, whenever people do statistics about healthcare spending or yeah. uh, military spending, the VA is not part of it. Huh. Um, so, like, whenever people talk about how many people are on, like, government-subsidized or government-paid-for health care, yeah. they talk about the Medicare and Medicaid, but don't talk about the VA. Yeah. And, and again, that's, you know, that's them taking care of, of their boys, their militaries. That's, yeah. it's, it's very, when people say that Republicans in the United States are fascists, like they are, it's just that it, it, it's a lack of Democrats not being that, <laughs> you know? Well, also Democrats are, this is why you should read Palancis because Palancis talks about this. He goes into how it's essentially a system that, People are he he does the whole like the global north is labor aristocracy, but actually does a good job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, where he he's talks about uh, no, they were promised things, and they were promised the the socialist part, but it was you get these guarantees if you go into the conquering the world area. Yeah. You don't get these by human right, like socialism promised. You get these by being part of the military. Yep. No, um, it makes perfect sense. And as and we're seeing with tech, as people, as these all of these companies are not making money off of, uh, you know, consumer profits anymore. They're all slowly moving Google, Facebook, everyone into uh, working with the military. So anyway. The most notable repercussion of this period in the revolutionary camp was the Red Week of June 1914. Romania and the marches were the epicenter of Red Week. In the field of bourgeois politics, the most notable repercussion was the Gentiloni Pact. Since the Socialist Party and the consequence of the rural movements in in the Po Valley had returned, had returned after 1910 to an intransigent tactic, the industrial bloc supported and represented by Giolitti lost its effectiveness. Giolitti shifted his rifle to the other shoulder. He replaced the alliance between the bourgeoisie and the workers by an alliance between the bourgeoisie and the Catholics, who represented the peasant masses of the north and central Italy. As a result of this alliance, Sonino's conservative party was totally destroyed, preserving only a tiny cell in southern Italy around Antonio Salandra. 
Today, Giolitti is once more in power, and once more, the big bourgeoisie is putting its trust in him. As a result of the panic, which has filled it before the impetuous movement of the popular masses, Giolitti wants to tame the Turin workers. He has beaten them twice in the, in the strike of last April and in the occupation of the factories with the help of CGL, i.e. of the corporate cooperative form. I don't know what CGL means. The, the uh, meaning is not provided. He now thinks that he can tie them into the bourgeoisie state system. What in fact will happen if the skilled workforce of fiat accepts the board's proposals? The present industrial shares will become debentures. In other words, the cooperative will have to pay the debentor holders a fixed dividend when at whatever the turnover may be. The fiat company will be cut off in every way from the in institutions of credit, which remain in the hands of the bourgeoisie, whose interest it is to get the workers at its mercy. The skilled workforce will perforce the skilled workforce will perforce have to bind itself to the state, which will, quote, come to the assistance of the workers, end quote, through the activity of the working class deputies, through the subordination of the working class political party to government policies. That is Giolitti's plan as applied in full. The Turin proletariat will no longer exist as an independent class but merely as an appendage of the bourgeois state. Class corporatism will have triumphed, but the proletariat will have lost its position and role as leader and guide. It will appear to the mass of poorer workers as privileged. It will appear to the peasants as an exploiter just like the bourgeoisie, because the bourgeoisie, as it has always done, will present the privileged nuclei of the working class to the peasant masses as the sole cause of their ills and misery. And this is the end of that block quote from the Socialist Party uh, talking about why corporatism and cooperatives are actually in the long run bad and it was uh, a, for the socialist movement. It was a big block too. <laughs> yeah. So that last paragraph is like the, the summary of if you're a real communist, this is why you shouldn't support uh, cooperatives because they really just trick you into thinking that you're you're doing something good when really you're just put it, pitting workers against each other. Okay. Um, the skilled workers, and now we're going back to actual Gramsci. The skilled workers of fiat accepted almost unanimous, unanimously our point of view, and the board's proposals were rejected. But this experiment could not be sufficient. The Turin proletariat, in a whole series of actions, had shown that it had reached an extremely high level of political maturity and capability. The technicians and white-collar workers in the factories were able to improve their conditions in 1919 only because they were supported by the workers. To break the militancy of the technicians, the employers proposed that the workers that they proposed to the workers that they should themselves nominate through elections a new squad and shop foremen. The workers rejected the proposal, although they had many points of difference with the technicians, who had always been an instrument of repression and persecution for the bosses. Then the press waged a rabid campaign to isolate the technicians, highlighting their high, very high salaries, which reached as much as 7,000 lire a month. Um, I don't know how much that is in today's money because Italy doesn't use lire anymore and you know inflation and stuff, but that could be like three or even four times the amount of your your non foreman or skilled worker at the time. So they made a lot more. So yeah, it's a big big amount. Yeah. Um 
And obviously, if you were like not even in the factories, you might be making like a thousand lire a month. So like the, it, it's, and obviously a peasant even less. So they they were they were pretty pretty well off. You want you wanted to be one of these guys, sure. Um, the skilled workers also gave support to the agitation of the hodmen. I don't know what that is. And it was only thus that the latter succeeded in winning their demands. Within the factories, all privileges and forms of exploitation of, exploitation of the less skilled by the more skilled categories were swept away. Through these actions, the proletarian vanguard won its position as a social vanguard. This was the basis upon which the Communist Party developed in Turin. But outside Turin? Well, we wanted expressly to take the problem outside Turin and precisely to Reggio Emilia, where there existed the greatest concentration of reformism and class corporatism. Now, he keeps mentioning reformism and class corporatism in Reggio Emilia, but like we should remember that this region, Reggio Emilia, is the heartland of Mussolini and fascism. So when he think of like corporatism and reformism as synonymous for him, when he's discussing fascism and and collaborationism and all of these things, they're just one-to-one replacements. So for him, if we can win the heartland of fascism, we can essentially win the revolution and to win the heartland of fascism we need to win the peasantry well also like uh you know if if we're it's not a one-to-one because america is not real like there's no there's no peasantry anymore in the yeah. u.s yeah if there's... we're just talking about your average joe joe america or whatever your joe dirt uh <laughs> um like they're they're just chilling. They're doing their thing. They kind of just want to be left alone. They go to the grocery store. They see the prices went up. That's mostly what they care about. If they're getting pissed off at vague things like what like woke woke mob coming for my movies or whatever the fuck, it's because they're online too much. Um, but like. The, the material things that they're getting upset over, like gas prices or whatever, that's because they're having material, like material consequences are happening to them. Yeah, it's affecting their everyday life. And the, the way that they're processing these things are through what Gramsci talks about, but then we see Palantis and Althusser and Stuart Hall really go into which is they process it through what they learn in school and the media. And when they hear the occasional politician talk or that town leader that they trust or the church that they go to or someone that they trust. So all of these things that are baked into how they learn and who they talk to and all these ways of understanding the world, um, so it's not really just getting to them and getting to say like, hey, you're going about this wrong. Because if we look at academics and we say like we show people a bunch of numbers and we say, okay, what you're doing is wrong, that doesn't convince anyone. You have to go into the community and you have to convince the community and do an education project. And that's really how you convince, you know, the, the heartland of fascism. Um, it's through political education that the way you're really going to be better off is by completely changing the entire system rather than doing this. Like the, the, that's how they won the fiat workers over. It was by teaching them that the whole system that was being proposed was going to ruin them. Well, and I think that's as good of a spot as any to stop. Um, sure. Okay, so with that, um, 
This has been Mark's Manus Pod, part of Chunkaluda Network. We read books. There's a number of ways you can get a hold of us. Um, you can go to it's on Twitter or X. It's at Chunkaluta Network um, on uh, or at Mark's Madness Pod um, on Gmail. It's Chunkaluta Network. Uh, at gmail.com or it's Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. And I'm sorry, on, on Twitter, X, it's Chunkaluta Org. That's right, because they, they took away Chunkaluta Network from us. Um, and uh, uh, there's also, you know, the Mark's Madness Discord as well as, and that's open to the public. The link is in the, the, the Twitter bio. Um, and then uh, as well as the Chunkaluta Discord that is uh, available through the Patreon. Um, uh, there is also, of course, Patreon. We are doing our winter drive right now, um, which is important because that is for wood to keep people warm, food to keep people fed, acute needs that that appear that relate to the winter. Also, you know, there's a lot of people that that seek shelter and and you know, in the shelter that they have now, there's things like roof leaks. So, part of the big community center project being built is uh, to offer that shelter as well as as a distribution center. So, you know, that's kind of the work that's going into these fundraisers. Uh, you can give to those. There is uh, a GoFundMe link in the link tree. It's a link tr.ee slash, and I, I want to get this right. So it's chunk slash Chunkalutan Network. Um, and and the, the winter drive uh, information is in there um, through GoFundMe. Um, we also, you know, if we get to complete that, uh, can turn back to, to wrapping up that wheelchair that we need to get, um, as well as, you know, um, we will be doing drives through, you know, social media, uh, to try to fundraise for things, including the winter drive and, and other causes. And so you can look out for that, but, uh, that's, uh, usually give at, at, uh, or it's Zakato tin can on uh, cash app. Um, is probably the best place to get for that stuff. Um, Prez, do you have anything else to plug? Uh, no. All right. Um, so again, Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunkalutan Network. We read books. My name is David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.